This morning, I want to begin with the text that was read for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. And listen, I've got this verse up here, and I've got another verse, and then I've got one more slide with the cross, and that's it. Keeping it very simple today, so that our minds and our eyes and our hearts can be focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, penned by the Apostle Paul. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, I didn't come to you with fancy sermons, with eloquent language. I came to proclaim the message of the cross of Christ. And you know what? That makes a lot of sense to us. We don't have trouble with that verse because we talk about the cross almost every time we get together. Certainly every Sunday we talk about the cross. From, uh, from every Sunday's sermon, you get a mention uh, or at least a reference to the cross, to Jesus' death. We commemorate the death of Jesus every Sunday when we gather around this table for the Lord's Supper. So every time we as believers, as Christians get together, we are talking about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We understand the significance of the cross. But if you go all the way back to the first century, when the gospel was first being proclaimed, this, was much, this idea was much harder for those people to grasp. And Paul tells us as much earlier in this letter to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23, he says, We preach Christ crucified. That is the summation of the message that we are declaring Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But let me tell you, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it is a folly to the Gentiles. So it causes the Jews to get tripped up. It confuses them. And everybody else, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, it seems to them foolishness. So the cross was a difficult teaching. The fact that Jesus died on the cross was very hard for people to understand. And why was it a struggle for people in the first century to accept that Jesus died on a cross? Well, it's because the Romans, and keep in mind, every play, almost every place we read about in the New Testament is under Roman rule, is a part of the Roman Empire at, at the time that the New Testament is written. And the Romans reserved crucifixion, this method of execution for the very worst criminals and their most notorious traitors. And they did that because it was the most painful and humiliating form of execution that there was. And so when Paul begins going here and there and and proclaiming Christ and Him crucified, you mean the Son of God, the Lord of all the earth, the Messiah, the Christ, Subjected himself to that? You mean he succumbed to death on a tool of execution used for the very worst among us? Did you know that Roman citizens, crucifixion was so bad that they were exempt from it, except in extreme cases. And there was a great Roman orator, his name was Cicero, maybe you've heard of him, who wrote a lot about 
crucifixion. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. A Roman said that. And he condemned crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Believed that his empire's government should do away with it. Banish it. He said the very word cross should be far removed. Not only from the person of a Roman citizen. But from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. Abolish the very word from the minds of the Roman people. That's how horrible it was. First century people had such a hard time accepting the gospel because they couldn't think of anything more terrible or humiliating or painful than dying on a cross. It was terrible. On June 6, 1944, at the height of World War II, the largest seaborne invasion in history occurred. Around 156,000 brave soldiers from the Allied forces from the United States of America and Britain and many other countries stormed the beaches along the Normandy coast in France. Their eventual goal with that invasion was to liberate northwestern Europe from Nazi control, France and the other countries in that region. We now know this event as D-Day. And it was a terrible day. The weather was far from ideal, it was stormy, and strong winds blew the landing craft east of their intended positions, and the men had to go ashore on beaches that they had not prepared for, that they did not recognize. The men landed under heavy fire, the shore was mined, it was covered with obstacles, which made clearing it and surviving the the initial uh, invasion very difficult. Over 10,000 Allied troops died. On that day. And on that day, none of their, on that first day, none of their objectives uh, were, were reached. It was a terrible day. The Roman orator uh, Cicero said the cross should be far removed from, from everybody's vocabulary. Because it is so terrible. And yet here we have Paul speaking, writing to the church at Corinth, and he is placing the cross of Christ front and center. He says, it shouldn't be removed from our vocabulary. It should be placed at the forefront of every believer's mind. And he and the early Christians, you know, they placed great emphasis on Christ's death on the cross. The Gospels, for instance, they devote a disproportionate amount of space on Jesus' last week. Did you know one-fourth of the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus' final week? One-third of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark are about the final week and the death of Christ. And almost one-half of the Gospel of John is devoted to the events surrounding the death of Jesus. Now, several years ago, I read a book. It was a biography about our second president, John Adams. And it was 651 pages long. I barely made it through this big, fat book. And do you know how many pages in that book were devoted to John Adams' death? 
just 10. 10 pages about the events of his death out of 651. And listen, John Adams' death was pretty significant because he died on the same day as Thomas Jefferson. And he died on July 4th, 50 years after the pinning of the Declaration of Independence. It was a big day for America and a, and a very uh, interesting time and day for him to die. But only 10 pages of that book are devoted to his death. And you could compare the Gospels to other modern day biographies. How much time is spent on the death of other people in their biographies? In Jesus, his death in that final week gets more attention than his previous 30 plus years. Why? Because the early Christians knew that there was something significant about his death. And Jesus himself knew that his death was central to his identity, to his mission. And in the Gospel of Mark, he tells his disciples no fewer than three times, I am going to die. I'm going to be betrayed and arrested, and I'm going to be put to death. He knew they needed to be prepared for that. And he knew that his death was central to the reason that he had been sent to earth. And those who came around to accepting the Gospel... Those who in the first century were able to get over this giant hurdle called the cross of Christ and embrace the good news of Jesus, they were often mocked for their preoccupation with his death. The first surviving visual representation of the crucifixion of Christ, it comes from graffiti. And if you thought graffiti was just a modern day thing, think again. Graffiti has been happening for hundreds of years. And there is some graffiti found on the wall of a 2nd century building on the Palatine Hill in Rome. It's believed to have been a school. Uh, And one of the boys in that school, in the 2nd century, scratched on that wall a crude drawing of a man with the head of a donkey nailed to a cross, a way to deride and to insult Jesus Christ by placing a donkey in place of his head. And to the left of that cross stands another man, one arm raised in worship, and scribbled underneath are the words, Alex Samanos worships his God. Indicating that this graffiti was meant to mock a young Christian named Alex Samanos who gave all of his devotion and allegiance to that God who decided to hang on that cruel cross, that humiliating form of execution. And those, that boy writing that graffiti, mocking Alex Samanos for placing his faith in a God who would willingly subject himself to the most painful form of execution possible. Alex Samanos worships his God. His God who chose to die on a cross. But you know, little by little, something astonishing happens in the Christian movement. The cross shifts from being the symbol of torturous, painful, humiliating death to the primary universal symbol of the Christian faith. As John Stott writes, the church, the church could have chosen a lot of images to represent Christianity. The church could have chosen the manger. and We think about the manger a lot this time of year. The manger in which the baby Jesus was laid as an emblem of the incarnation of God becoming flesh. 
The church could have picked the carpenter's bench. Jesus grew up in the home of a carpenter, and maybe that would affirm the dignity of manual labor. The church could have picked the boat from which Jesus taught the people, or the towel that he used to wash and wipe the disciples' feet. Symbols of his humble service and the service that we should emulate as his followers. The church could have picked the tomb from which he rose again, or the throne that he occupies today, representing his power and his might and his sovereignty. The church could have picked the dove or the fire, emblems of the coming Holy Spirit. Any one of these could have been an appropriate symbol of the Christian faith. But we instead chose the cross. The cross. And today it's everywhere. Here it is right here on the front of this podium. An instrument of execution on the front of this podium in this church building. The equivalent of, in modern times, a hangman's noose or an electric chair. If somebody from the first century walked into this building having not heard the gospel of Jesus and saw a cross on the front of this podium, They'd say, what kind of a place is this? And yet, because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ willingly hung there for the sins of all humanity, that is the symbol that we have adopted. And we see crosses everywhere. Maybe some of you are wearing them around your neck this morning or on some other piece of jewelry. In the National Cemetery in Chattanooga, where my grandmother is buried, the white tombstones are laid out before you symmetrically and almost on almost all of them, what will you find? A cross engraved to represent the Christian faith of the person in those graves. Why, there's one just up on the mountain that you can see as you make your way up to Sewanee and Mont Eagle, standing there overlooking the valley. The medieval cathedrals that were built were done so in the shape of a cross. If you were to look at them from the air, you would see the cross of Christ. And we as Christians, because we have the cross on our minds, or we ought to, we'll often catch a glimpse of the cross in unexpected places. In two pieces of wood fastened together. uh, In a window or in some other piece of architecture that reminds us of the cross where Jesus hung. Crosses are everywhere and they're everywhere because we know the importance of reminding ourselves that we serve a crucified lord a lord who willingly gave himself up for us all at the cross god works through something that is terrible you can't imagine any worse than what happened at the cross but he works through it to bring about something That is wonderful. Even though there were many, many lives lost on D-Day, on that day when the Allied forces stormed the beaches at Normandy, we now view that invasion as the beginning of the end of that great war. The operation that day helped the Allied forces gain a foothold, which they gradually expanded over the coming months. It was a decisive victory. And if those landings had never occurred, then countless more lives would have been lost. It was a terrible day. There was much death, 
and despair and destruction. But it was also a wonderful day because it was the beginning of the end of the war. And because because of that invasion, many more lives were spared. God works through something terrible to bring about something wonderful at the cross. At the cross, Jesus becomes a curse for us. The old law said anybody who hangs on a tree and dies there is cursed before God. And Jesus became a curse for us in order to release us from the curse of sin. Something terrible God uses to bring about something wonderful. At the cross, Jesus' communion with God is broken. He cries out at the end of hours of God-forsaken darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The communion that he shared with God was broken so that our broken communion with God could be mended. Something terrible produces something wonderful for us. His death was seen by the forces of evil and by most humans as a great defeat. Well, that's the end of the Christian movement. Their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, he's dead now, so they can move on to some other leader. That's the end of that. Rome has won again. Rome has squashed this movement just like it has all the others. But what Paul tells us in Colossians is that instead of a defeat, the cross is actually a place where Jesus triumphs over the evil forces of of darkness, the forces of Satan. It is a place not of defeat, but of victory. Jesus wins a great victory, disarming the rulers and authorities at the cross, putting them to open shame. The cross is not a place of defeat. It's a place where God wins. This terrible death, and make no mistake, it was terrible. And yet it brings about the wonderful gifts that we've been talking about in this mini-series In this one-word mini-series, we've been talking about our salvation. It is the cross that brings about justification. Our ability to be made right in the eyes of God, the cross did that. Our propitiation, where God does not give us what we deserve, where we can escape His wrath, the cross does that. Our redemption, the buying back, Uh, of of ourselves from, from a state where we are lost. The cross does that. Our atonement, our being made one, our being united in communion with God once again. The cross does that. The cross does all of these things. That terrible death that Jesus was subjected to produces wonderful gifts of salvation for us. At the cross of Christ, God turns an instrument of death into the only source of life that exists on the face of this earth. A symbol of fear that would strike terror into the heart of every person who lived in the Roman Empire but wasn't a Roman citizen. A symbol of fear turned into a beacon of hope. Only God can do something like that. Only God. And that's why we can sing thing, sing lines like, My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You hear what the songwriter does? He's looking at the cross, the bleakest, darkest, most 
terrible moment in human history, but a smile creeps across his face because of what Jesus did for him, because of the forgiveness of sins that he can experience through the cross. And witnessing the cross doesn't bring only heartache for God, it brings about great joy and bliss for what God accomplishes on the hill of Calvary. And because of the cross during the Lord's Supper, it's okay for a tear, a tear to roll down your cheek when you consider the torture and the pain and the death that Jesus experienced. But it's also okay during the Lord's Supper for joy to swell within your heart because of what the cross means for you for all eternity. When Christ died, it was terrible. And it was wonderful. And only God can make something that terrible produce something that wonderful. And you know what? To follow Christ today, you must die. You must die to your sin. And that involves what is often a painful and humiliating acknowledgement of the ways that you have fallen short. And a putting to death that fleshly side of yourself and embracing that spiritual side. And that can be terrible. It can be painful. It can be excruciating. It ought to be because by default we are all sinful creatures. But God has called us to a better life, a greater life than that. And it involves putting away the old so that we can embrace the new. And it's the only way to receive the wonderful salvation that God offers. The old must be expunged. It must be purged for the new to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I didn't come with fancy language. I didn't come with eloquent sermons. I came to set your eyes, your heart, and your mind on the cross. Jesus died for you. Christ has been crucified for your benefit. The question is, will you be crucified with Him so that He can live in you? Are you ready to lay down your life so that He can give you abundant life, the only life that matters, a life that will extend into eternity? That's the invitation of God this morning. Come and be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And if you do that, if you come and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're buried uh, in that watery grave of baptism, you'll come up a new creature. The old will be in the past. The new will be with you forevermore. If you're struggling spiritually and you, you want to come and recommit your life Christ be restored, then we invite you to come. Or if you need prayers for any reason, this is a great opportunity for you to come and make those needs known to this family of God's people. Would you do that as we stand and sing?